Long time ago in Bethlehem, the Holy Bible say, Mary's boy child, Jesus Christ, was born on Christmas Day. Hark now hear the angels sing, the new king's born today. And man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Hello everybody, this is Julian Charles of TheMindRenewed.com, podcasting to you almost as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Now please excuse my slightly whispering tone. Um, Unfortunately, I have a problem with my vocal cords. Those of you who are long-time listeners to The Mind Renewed will recall that I, at least I think, I mentioned that I had this problem back in the summer and the doctor's believed that they diagnosed it and I received a medication that seemed to to get rid of it but it has recurred or something similar (laughs) has uh, taken its place and the doctors are currently looking into it and haven't seemed to find what the problem is but it does actually make speaking sometimes quite uncomfortable not too bad today yesterday was absolutely terrible and as a consequence of this I've had to postpone the interview with Robert Bowman, which was to have been yesterday, and I apologise that I've postponed uh, two podcasts recently, but uh, I've really got to get this problem sorted before I get back to you know, extensive interviewing. It's obviously with something like this that I'm doing, I can keep resting my voice and, and come back to it later. So this is going to be the last podcast of 2014. Again, I apologise for having put things on the schedule and then not being able to do them. Um, I'm very much hoping to be able to resume in early January, um, but we'll have to see how things go. Anyway, I thought that what I would do would be to take this opportunity, such as it is, to share with you the other item that Dr. Stan discussed with me in the last interview that he had with us, where we were talking about a couple of interviews that had helped to shape his way of looking at the world, and I included the Anthony Sutton one, uh, but there was also the, uh, the Norman Dodd interview from about 1980. And of course, Norman Dodd was the chief investigator for the Reese Committee back in the 1950s that was looking into the activities of the tax-exempt foundations, in particular the Carnegie Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation. And in this 1980 conversation with Dr. Stan, Norman Dodd explained how the president of the Ford Foundation around that time in the 50s had invited Norman Dodd to to go and see him at uh, his offices. I suppose I should explain, of course, that the Reese Committee was finding that these tax-exempt foundations were indeed trying to change the the culture of the United States in a more collectivist direction, uh, largely through influencing education, and doing so from their advantageous position of tax-exempt status. Anyway, Rowan Gator, who was the head of the Ford Foundation at the time, made this invitation to Norman Dodd, and there was this astonishing moment where Norman Dodd said that Rowan Gator had said to him something like, uh, Mr. Dodd, you're investigating foundations like ours, and would you like to know basically what we're doing? And before uh, Norman Dodd could say, yes, that would be great, please do tell me, he volunteered this information. Um, Let me just quote from that. Um, He says, uh, one instance had to do with my responding to an invitation from the president of the Ford Foundation, who asked me, 
if, when I was next in New York, would I stop in their office and have a visit, which I did, and on arrival, after amenities, Mr. Gator, who was the then president, said, Mr. Dodd, we invited you to come and see us this morning, hoping that you would, off the record, tell us why the Congress was interested in operations of foundations such as ours. And before I could think of how I could reply to him, he volunteered the following. He said, Mr. Dodd, those of us here at the policy-making level have all had experience either with the OSS or the European Economic Administration in operating under directives, the origin of which was the White House. We today operate under just such directives. Would you like to know what the substance of these directives is? And I said, yes, Mr. Gator, I'd like very much to know, whereupon he said to me, the substance of the directives under which we operate is that we shall use our grant-making power so to alter life in the United States that we can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. And he goes on to say, well, figuratively, I nearly fell off my chair. <laughs> and that is obviously an astonishing remark. And it's so astonishing that question marks start to pop up, certainly in my mind, as to what on earth was going on there. And it seems to me that there are a number of possibilities. First of all, I guess it's possible that Mr. Dodd was lying about that and that conversation either never took place or those words were not spoken in that conversation. I find that rather implausible, to be honest. It seems to me that there's nothing about Norman Dodd that seems suspicious that he would have made anything up like that. And it also seems to me that it was not to his advantage to have made something up like this. I think actually... The words that were spoken in this conversation are, are so remarkable, counterintuitive, and bordering on the ridiculous in most people's minds that I think for him to have made something up like this would really have been counterproductive for him, so I don't see the purpose in that at all. So I think that these words were indeed spoken. I suppose it's possible that Mr. Dodd misunderstood what Mr. Gator said, and I also find that unlikely because those words were embedded in a larger narrative of him going to the place and the conversation being set up. There's a larger context in which those words are embedded um, and the conversation continues after that with Norman Dodd's surprise being expressed. So again, I don't think it seems likely that he misheard. So I think the conversation took place and I think he correctly heard what was said. Now the question is what was meant by it. That's what remains and I think there are a number of possibilities with this. The first possibility is that Mr. Cater was just revealing to Norman Dodd what the tax exempt foundations were essentially about with respect to Norman Dodd's investigation. That's possible. And that seems to be the way that it's presented and the way that Mr. Dodd understood it. But that doesn't seem very likely to me. Why would the president of the Ford Foundation just volunteer this information? So that then suggests another couple of possibilities that perhaps Mr. Gator was just being sarcastic. You know, something like, Mr. Dodd, you're investigating us and you think we've got all these sort of socialist views. Well, I'm just going to be absolutely ridiculous in what I say and say, yeah, that's right, we're real socialists. Actually, we want to marry up the United States with the Soviet Union. It could have been meant in a very sarcastic way like that. That's possible. But then why would you invite Mr. Dodd especially to come to your offices just to be sarcastic to him? That seems to be the kind of remark that will be more off-the-cuff, a kind of reflexive, heated remark, not something calculated that you would bother to invite the chap over and have a cup of coffee or whatever and then just be sarcastic to him. And Mr. Dodd not to pick up on that? That doesn't seem 
that just doesn't seem to to fit really. What I think is more likely is that it's not so much sarcasm as manipulative. So as to say something to him, which on the face of it seemed quite ridiculous, in the hope that Norman Dodd would then repeat this and make a fool of himself and discredit the findings of the Reese Committee. That seems possible to me. That would be worth doing from Mr Gator's perspective, it seems to me. And so there is a possibility that, in fact, no, this was not actually what the Ford Foundation or any of these tax-exempt foundations were trying to do. But they were so displeased with Norman Dodd, they kind of played a trick on him in the hope that he would take the bait and make a fool of himself and discredit the findings of the committee. But, you know, there's another explanation that I think is slightly more plausible still, and that is that this was an ironic remark. And judging by the conceit of many people in positions of power, judging by the high probability from all that we've been looking at on this podcast over the last two years, that there are indeed people in exalted positions who do think that world government is a good idea and have done for a very long time. Well, it seems to me quite possible, as I say, combined with that conceit, that this could have been an ironic statement, so that it would achieve a couple of things. It would achieve the possible discrediting of Norman Dodd if he were to interpret the words of Mr. Gator absolutely, literally, yes, it's going to be this combination of the United States and the Soviet Union. That would be sure to make a fool of him. But it also serves the kind of conceited hidden message that there's some truth to this after all. Whether Mr. Dodd picks up on it or not doesn't matter because it's hidden behind this ridiculous statement. But what would that hidden truth be? Well, I think something more like the work of the Foundation was so to change the life of the United States that it would one day not exactly become merged with, but would find itself following a, a trajectory that would coincide with whatever would be happening to what is currently known as the Soviet Union. That the life of the Soviet Union, or whatever it might be in future, would also perhaps change in certain ways, and that there would be a kind of almost natural, seemingly inevitable, flowing together, a convergence of whatever those countries, those systems, would one day become under the influence of various programs. And that was presented in this coded way that could be misinterpreted, taken very literally, as indeed it seems Mr. Dodd did, such that people could look at it and say, that's ridiculous. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. That's just the way I read it. Maybe some other explanation for this, but I leave it with you to hear what Mr. Dodd says, and you can decide for yourself whether any of these explanations make any sense or whether it's something else. So I leave with you the interview that Dr. Stan had with Norman Dodd back in 1980, and I apologize again for not being able to have the normal podcast, and I wish you a very, very happy Christmas and my best wishes for the new year. And I very, very much hope that I shall be in a position to recommence the podcast in early January. We shall see. As I say, they, my doctors did manage to get this sorted last time, so it may well be the case that it will be sorted again. Um, I suppose one other thing I wanted to say was that so many times over the last couple of years on the podcast, we've been dealing with subjects which are really quite disturbing and worrying and unpleasant. And I have had quite a few emails from people saying that so much concentration on things that are negative can kind of give the impression that there's no hope. And maybe that's a, an imbalance that I need to look at, because of course I 
coming from the belief position that I do, I very much believe there's hope. Not just hope eternally, but of course I do believe that, but I think there's hope even in this world that tyranny can be resisted. And that is not, of course, to negate what I think is prophesied for the future, but that will be a podcast in itself. <laughs> I can't do that now. But suffice it to say that with all the things, the crazy things, the disturbing things we see going on around us, which I think it is necessary for us to talk about, even if that creates a kind of distorted picture of so much that's wrong rather than looking at things that are right. Nevertheless, we should know about these things and talk about them. But it remains the case that none of this is ultimately out of control. Not ultimately, because God is sovereign. And it is true, he has given a great deal of freedom, of course, to the creation such that the creation can rebel. Human beings have always and continue to rebel against their creator and try to be gods themselves and set up a, the kingdom of God on earth uh, according to their own image. God has given this freedom for us to step away from him. But he is ultimately in control. No matter what we do, the evil that human beings do, it will not stop God's kingdom from one day coming to pass, which I've been calling the real new world order. The new heavens and the new earth will step in when Christ returns and will embrace the whole of reality. So let's remember that as we celebrate Christmas this year, that we are in fact celebrating not just the incarnation at some point in the past, but everything that means for the future, that this is God's world. He loves it, he came to us, and he will complete his plans for the whole of reality, and everything that stands against him ultimately will fail. So I leave you with that thought. Again, I wish you a very happy Christmas and a wonderful new year, and I look forward to speaking to you again, God willing, in January. Twenty-seven years ago, the Congress of the United States authorized the formation of a Congressional Investigating Committee to try to analyze the functions of the great foundations in America, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, and the Ford Foundation, for the Congressional Committee that came to be known as the Reese Committee. Mr. Dodd is an economist. He's a uh, consultant as far as investment is concerned. But during that period, that very important period, some 27 years ago, he headed research in the effort to find out what indeed were the great foundations doing in America. Mr. Dodd, what did you find out was the stated objective and goals of the great American foundations? We found out, Doctor, that these foundations had as their objective the orientation of the people of this country to the idea of collectivism and uh, thereby nullifying for good and all of uh, the commitment of the country to individualism, which was the feature of the country at the beginning. Now, how did they go about doing this? Well, primarily they did it, Doctor, by, uh, by uh, securing control of what is known as the money supply of the people of this country. You're speaking now of the money supply that was going into education. Well, it's the money supply of the, of the people of the country as a whole. And how did they do this? They did this by working out a system of banking, uh, 
which was foreign in its concept, but it enabled it, debt to be what we call monetized, transformed into bank deposits. Now, how did they specifically set out to influence education in America? Well, by having at their disposal unlimited quantities of this newly created money and being able to reward uh, the personalities who were active in the world of education administratively as well as academically. Were they able to influence the textbooks or the teachers? Yes, they were. They were able to get, see that textbooks were almost produced by on order and assuring the publishers of textbooks of the funds necessary to make the publication of those books profitable. Now, have you personally had contact with some of the directors of these great foundations? Yes, I have. Could you tell us about it? Well, one instance, I'll use a couple of instances as, as illustrations. One instance had to do with my responding to an invitation from the president of the Ford Foundation who asked me if when I was next in New York would I stop in their office and have a visit which I did and on arrival after amenities Mr. Gaither who was the then president said Mr. Dodd we invited you to come and see us this morning hoping that you would off the record tell us why the Congress was interested in operations of foundations such as ours. And before I could think of how I would reply to him, he volunteered the following. He said, Mr. Dodd, those of us here at the policy-making level have all had experience either with the OSS or the European Economic Administration in operating under directives, the origin of which was the White House. We today operate under just such directives. Would you like to know what the substance of these directives is? And I said, yes, Mr. Gator, I'd like very much to know. Whereupon he said to me, the substance of the directives under which we operate is that we shall use our grant-making power so to alter life in the United States that we can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. <coughs> well, figuratively, I nearly fell off the chair. But I did remark to him, <coughs> Mr. Gaither, in the light of what you just told me, many of your grants make sense. I can understand them. But I do not think you're entitled to withhold this information from the people of this country to whom you are beholden for your tax exemption. So why don't you tell them what you've told me? And his answer was, Mr. Dodd, we wouldn't think of doing that. So I said, well, Mr. Gaither, answer your first question. You forced the Congress of the United States to spend $150,000 to find out what you've just told me. And so they've been pushing socialism in America ever since. Well, then, in the light of that, of course, you see conditions develop, and, of course, you then can add and ascribe the development of these conditions and the events that accompany 
to this policy because it's only in the light of that policy that these events and, and effects make any sense. Yeah, this is how, this is how, and this is their problem, Doctor. They cannot avoid having effects result from the grants that they make. They cannot avoid it. Therefore, those of, of, of this, in this country who would be concerned with what are they up to merely has to look at the effects and work back and compare the effects of a grant with the explanation of the grant in the first place. I mean, I'll just use as, as an instance to clarify the matter. You will remember there was a time when the Federal Reserve System was installed in this country by the Congress. In other words, it was legalized. And there had, it had been preceded by a long period of years and a struggle to get the Federal Reserve approved. Finally, it was approved, and the argument that swung it, swung the approval in that direction, was that if the system is installed, the result will be the elimination of bank failures. And inasmuch as there had been in those days uh, a plethora of bank failures, this was held up as a very beneficial development. Practice, what they call fractional reserve central banking. But nobody goes back, this was in 1912, nobody goes back to 1930 when every bank in the United States was closed. Every bank. There wasn't a solvent bank in the United States. That, you see, was proof that the original purpose was in no sense to eliminate bank failures. And this discrepancy and these contrasts and these contradictions are the telltale part that the, those who have imposed these practices on us as a people are scared to death that it's going to be picked up and stressed and taught and so forth and so on. But it isn't. No, and the mass media doesn't ordinarily talk about no, it. No, but it neither does the educational world. This is what has to, this is what will meet the challenge. One accredited educational institution with trustees who openly declare that we notice this we notice the inconsistency, the contradictions, and we are setting forth an effort to account for them. And that, in my opinion, would explode the whole, oh, the whole network. And they have told me that this is what they're scared to death. Somebody is going to pick up this string. Mr. Dodd, what do you think is the basic crux of this whole problem? Well, Doctor, I feel that the problem itself originates 
with that aspect of human life which condemns men collectively to experience what is known as the fall of man and that subsequently Christ became into the world with the, the in, with the knowledge that the individual could confront this condition and um, not become victimized by it, but that th that uh, that entailed the individual emulating Christ, who, who through the temptations in the wilderness was confronted by the satanic listen to what the satanic had to offer and say no and then add and I know you to be Satan and Satan went away that to me is the clue to how to nullify this um, influence which has had humanity in its grip for centuries well <clears throat> of course what it means is that one has to accept the realism of the inclusion of evil and that in turn challenges the world of education to equip the, the, the student with the knowledge necessary to recognize evil in action in, within the sphere of his own experiences and refuse to be part of it. Then this influence which has been behind the creation of this network can operate. It cannot operate in the light. And admittedly, it, you know, says that it acknowledges that so that it is, those who are part of it knowingly are scared to death that somebody at some point, as they put it, they're going to pick up the end of a string and little by little follow it to the end. And as they put it to me, when that happens, we're through. Now, did you or any member of your staff ever have the opportunity of going through the records of any of the great foundations? Well, we had one remarkable instance of that kind, by in, again, by invitation. This invitation came from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and was in response to a letter which I had written to the endowment asking certain questions, seeking certain information. And this invitation was issued to me over the telephone to come to their office in New York when I was next there. This I did and on arrival found myself in the presence of the Dr. Joseph Johnson, the president, two vice presidents and their own counsel, a partner of Sullivan and Cromwell. And after a minute, Dr. Johnson said, Mr. Dodd, we received your letter and we can answer all these questions, but that it will be a great deal of trouble because with the uh, approval of by the Senate a ratification of the United Nations Treaty we felt our job was done so we took all our records from the beginning of this endowment 
up to that 1945 and I sent them to the warehouse and then we con concentrated on just using our funds to build this new building across the street from the United Nations which would provide the various organizations that would follow the United Nations activities with a place to meet but he said we have a counter suggestion and that is Mr. Dodd if you can spare a member of your staff for two weeks and send them to New York we will provide that member with a room in the library our library and the minute books of this endowment since its inception and we think whatever you want to find out you can find out through that source well my first reaction was these men had lost their mind because I had a pretty good idea of what those minute books might show up but as I thought about it I realized that most of them were new in their position and my guess was none of them had ever read the minutes themselves which would be cost quite a task to cover 50 years of minutes you know reading I accepted this invitation and selected a, a member of my staff a Miss Catherine Casey who was a practicing Washington lawyer but who was on my staff to see to it that I in conduct of the work of the staff did not break any official rules in Washington Catherine was also unsympathetic to the investigation her attitude was what could possibly be wrong with foundations they do so much good well I went out of my way not to prejudice her but I did say that Catherine when you get to New York you'll find that you can't possibly cover 50 years of minutes in two weeks so you'll have to do what we call spot reading and I blocked out certain periods for her to concentrate on and when she returned to from Washington her eyes were figuratively as big around as saucers and she brought back to me the following on dictaphone belts we're back in 1908 and the trustees meet and they raise this question among themselves namely is there any means beside war known to man more capable assuming you wish to alter the life of an entire people now these are the trustees of the Carnegie That's Foundation right. and they discuss this question in a very learned fashion for approximately a year and come up with the conclusion that war is the most effective means known to man assuming you wish to alter the life of an entire people so then they bring up a second question namely how do we involve the United States in a war and I doubt if in 1909 
there was any subject more removed from the minds of us as a people than our involvement in a war. There were shows going on in the Balkans, and most of the people of this country hardly knew where the Balkans were. And they conclude that they must control the diplomatic machinery of the United States. And that raises question number three, namely, how do we secure that control? And the answer comes up, we must control the State Department. And there, from that time on, their activities were centered on securing control of the State Department. Now, as a means to that end, the endowment founded an instrumentality called the Council for Learned Societies. And that council was assigned the task of passing on every high official appointment to the State Department before the appointment was confirmed. At that point, this finding linked up with what we had already suspected. But nevertheless, there was confirmation of it. Well, this happened... <clears throat> And pretty soon this, the country was in a war, which came to be known, of course, as World War I. And this group of trustees at one point congratulated themselves on the wisdom of their original decision because, as they put it, war has demonstrated a power to alter the life of the people of this country already. And then their interest centered on seeing to it that we as a people did not revert to our customs and our practices which prevailed prior to the outbreak of World War One. And they decided after the war was over that that meant we had to control education in the United States. And so they realized that this was a very prodigious task. So they, they approached the Rockefeller Foundation and made the suggestion that the Rockefeller Foundation take on half the problem and they retained the other half. They divided it between those subjects which were domestic in their significance and those which were international. And they together, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Endowment, decided that the crux of the matter lay in their ability to alter the teaching of American history in this country. So they approached the then three of the most prominent historians with that suggestion and they were turned down flat. So then they decided they'd have to build their own stable of historians. And so they then approached the Guggenheim Foundation which specialized in awarding fellowships and said figuratively 
when we find a lot of young man who's headed to become a teacher of American history and will you grant him on our say-so a fellowship? And the answer was, yes, we will. So they gradually assembled 20. And they took these 20 to England, London. And there they briefed them as to what was expected of them. And that became the nucleus of the American Historical Association, to which, ultimately, the endowment made a grant of $400,000 for a study to be made which would conclude what the future of this country was to be. And at the end of 1932, this study comes out in seven volumes, the last volume of which was a summary of the other six. And it ended on the note that the future of this country belongs to collectivism administered with characteristic American efficiency. And that became the, I said, and using today's language, that became the guidelines for higher education in this country. And then coincidentally with that, then books began to appear, all of which were uh, detrimental to our vision of our own patriots who had signed a Declaration of Independence and they were downgrading these men. Witness the last, most recent book on Jefferson that had to do with his having a, enjoyed a colored mistress and things like that. But there's no reason to write that sort of thing. You know, were many of these books that have come out through the years funded, financed, subsidized by the great foundations? Through the medium of their uh, support of public, certain publishing companies, yes. Did the mass media in, in the 1950s adequately, adequately cover the findings of the Reese Committee? Oh, no. No. Was there any effort? Uh, most, most reaction through the, through the media were, casting, were aimed at criticism of me as a personality and well, that and let it go with that. Well, certainly when the book, The Foundations, Their Power and Their Influence came out, this was basically a book that covered the background of the findings of the Reese Committee. Did this book get any coverage as far as book reviews? Was it uh, widely circulated? No. Did the public have an opportunity to find out what the great foundations were really doing? No, this book circularized or became circularized through the medium of what we refer to as the conservatives in this country. So it was, in a sense, um, a corroboration of what motivates the conservatives in this country. And they all had this book, and that's all there was to it. Was there any relationship between the foundations and the English establishment? Yeah, a very close one for um, doctors through the medium of the Rhodes Foundation, which was British, and the awarding in this country of Rhodes Scholarships. And the, and the beneficiaries of those scholarships 
ordinarily would constitute the persons who were appointed on behalf of the objectives of the foundations. I'll just use as an example um, a classmate of mine in boarding school, a man named Bill Stevenson, who went to Princeton, became a lawyer after going to Harvard Law School, and um, soon after, after that became the head of the Aspen Institute in Colorado, which was, as they expressed it in those days, a think tank for the indoctrination of the leaders of American industry in the ideas of collectivism. And humanism. As just as an example, another classmate of mine in Yale by the name of William Benton uh, had a fantastic career and finally ended up a senator from Connecticut for one six months period. And then Bill uh, left and went to Moscow, as he put it, for the purpose of finding out whether his interpretation of what was going on in Russia was the wave of the future and came back and said yes he found out he was right and he ultimately became the individual who did most to orient the Ford Foundation over to that point of view and at the same time Bill became the liaison between Moscow and Washington and the United Nations through UNESCO, the educational arm of the United Nations. It's all a, um, a dovetailing in to form a, an amazing web. Then in essence, the function of the Great Foundations was to push this concept of secular humanism. Yes, well that's a, that was a name that is relatively recent assigned to it, but in effect, yes. One and the same. Sure. But in ba it, basically, it's a matter of the, the world finding a name for the opposite of what our founding fathers created in this country. And of course, one of the names they found uh, and, and employed was capitalism. Capitalism was never a, a system thought out and and advanced and proposed and promoted it was a name assigned to a body of practices that were already going on but didn't have any name so those who were advocating socialism gave these practices the name of capitalism and we've accepted it then that fell in with marx finding, namely capitalism contains the seeds of its own destruction and what he, of course what he really meant was capitalism as practiced contained the seeds of its own destruction but all these misunderstandings have to be cleared away as and in some cases um, phases of experience have got to be defined well, Mr. Dodd, if we continue going along the same course that we've been following in the past as far as our foreign and domestic and military policies are concerned, what, in your opinion, is the outlook for the survival of America as a free and independent nation? Well, my opinion is that it will not survive. 
In fact, in my opinion, that has not survived. We now are not a free and independent nation. We've adopted the basic concepts of collectivism. Yes, and the controls are lodged. The controls of us are lodged just as they are the controls of Russia outside of these two countries. We don't have any control over our own destiny and our policies are not formulated by ourselves or as a people. But we have no idea by whom they've been formulated and we're not allowed to know. The recording used in this podcast is copyright Radio Liberty, all rights reserved, and is used here with kind permission.